0: Hello and welcome back to The Midpoint. I think this might be the first time we've had a barrister on the show but of course Rob Rinder is a lot more than that including a regular host on Good Morning Britain and the star of ITV's long-running courtroom reality show, Judge Rinder. Rob is also a writer with a column in the London Evening Standard and he's just released his debut novel, The Trial which I can't wait to get my hands on. And after delving deep into his Jewish family history Rob has also created some very powerful documentaries and we're going to be joined by psychotherapist and best-selling author Julia Samuel to discuss how we inherit love and loss, the focus of her latest book. There is so much to discuss, not least Rob's marathon running and his views on romance in midlife. So let's get going. Rob. It is really great to have you on The Midpoint. Uh, I'll declare I'm a huge fan of what you do on TV and also how you've managed, I think, to be quite outspoken about the things that are really important to you and you write about the things that are really important to you and talk about them in in a way that is is careful, considerate, sensible and you're still doing that because it feels like we're living in a landscape right now where people are really quite scared to do that. Do you feel that at all?
1: I'm sure, but um, what a lovely um, introduction that is. And um, I had to say, when you invited me on to Midpoint, you know, it was kind of a curious reaction.
0: (laughs) Did you start thinking about where you were in life?
1: (laughs) Yeah, time creeps (laughs) up on you. It's my birthday tomorrow.
0: Oh, many happy returns for that.
1: And the sort of idea of it being a Midpoint, which, you know, you could look at in two ways. One being the kind of bleak, nostalgic darkness of thinking, oh, God, all of that time has passed, or the limitless optimism of thinking, well, how much there is to, yet to do. And um, to some extent, there's a chemical component, which informs that, but it's also a choice. And I'm definitely the Pollyanna, the one that thinks towards you know, what optimism is there, what light is there to bring to the people closest to you, to whom I write. And so you're absolutely right. Um, it's a challenging time. But we have very short historical and social memories. You know, um, our parents grew up in challenging times. You know, they'll have uh, touched the face of all sorts of political situations, social situations where people are you know, violently opposed to one another. And our grandparents had grew up against the backdrop of bleakness war and almost certainly known somebody personally connected to them who will have died. And I think in both of our cases, for instance, without going into it, we know that deeply personally. And so, um, you know, with all of that, I think what that teaches you is that the only thing that you can do is to be honest and truthful, always being mindful insofar as possible that there's a delicate balance to be had between truth and kindness. And that you can deliver truth, authenticity and honesty at the same time as enabling people better to hear it by delivering the message through the prism of kindness.
0: And yet it feels like there's almost a direct line to 2016 that we've become so polarized and people have to sit entrenched in one view and entrenched in another view, which is kind of the law, I guess, when you go into you know you go into a case, people are are not looking for nuance at the very outset, are they? They're looking to make their case. And then there's some grey area and some nuance and you can kind of come to a conclusion. But in real life we always used to be able it felt like to kind of listen to somebody else's debate and have a chat about it and see where you felt you know you could make some compromise it doesn't feel as easy to make compromise anymore in society um,
1: you know un- un- undoubtedly that feels like it's true and to some extent it probably is but it's difficult to say how true that is because um, so much of the news feed, let's say, the cultural and political landscape is informed, shaped and curated by social media. And only 1% of people are actually on Twitter. And the way things work nowadays, somebody who has a particular bleak axe to grind, who sits up all night chain-smoking parliaments and wearing a Moomoo and is generally angry about the world and has residual energy at the end of the day to write something mean will capture, because it bleeds and consequently it leads, um, the imagination and the lack of well uh, capacity in every sense of a journalist to make that the headline. And let me explain what I mean. You know, I could be on Good Morning Britain and I'll be good for the first 20 minutes and one person will say, Rob Brinder's the best presenter ever. That then becomes a news story because four people have tweeted about it. And in precisely the same way, if you were to see the world through the lens of um, social media, you would assume that communities, people in general, are infinitely more angry with each other than they actually are. You could followed, as I did, uh, the coverage of the last election, last general election. And had you uh, simply curated your newsfeed through Twitter, you would assume that we were heading directly to a um, coalition government, perhaps with a labor majority. And they were massively wildly off. And the reason for that is because all of the SPADs, the special advisors and the people in TV are completely addicted to the dopamine thwack, the little microdoses of serotonin they get every time somebody likes that little heart shaped for a reason, outcome of a tweet. And so, you know, this tiny proportion is telling us informing us daily that actually we're a disagree with one another more than we do B, there's tons that divide us and C, we care desperately about different things when nearly in nearly all encounters i have with people from different communities backgrounds even political points of view one of the things that's completely striking and i suspect it's true for you and your listeners is just how much we agree on the things that matter to us and we care about fear around our children the sort of madness of not feeling free to say stuff people kind of agree the difficulty is that the gatekeepers the media who um, deliberately have a vested interest in driving people apart as the politicians um, instead of wanting to enable focus and curate or conduct that uh, a harmony between people it's much more to their commercial advantage for us to be fighting with one another. One thing you said that is true is that when people um, nowadays have strong, let's say, political points of view, where things have become, let's say, increasingly tribal, what has happened, and this has been reinforced, enabled by social media, is that it's moved how people feel about the world politically from the kind of logical hemisphere of the brain to the cortex where identity is governed, the emotional bit, you know. And as I say, I think, you know, not just social media, but in general, a variety of different reasons that that movement's taken place. And the consequence of that is that what you're talking about is you and me could vehemently disagree with one another, but understand, accept, that we're both people of goodwill, just Mm -hmm. with different point of views around this issue, but fundamentally Mm as human beings Mm -hmm. are driven by the same drives, missions, and purposes of decency, and so on and so forth. And nowadays, if you do have a a different point of view, what happens is that immediately it feels like somebody's threatening your identity, which is just the most threatening thing of all, right? It feels unsafe to use the general language. And you're not going to do well when somebody's threatening you or somebody you love or know and so consequently the whole conversation ends up in a various versions of shouting so one of our responsibilities I think you do this well is to be effective communicators and one of the ways I feel sure we can do that is by understanding how nowadays to make a really good point and I think there are three elements to it and it's part of the work that I've been gifted enough to be able to make so the first thing is be it on Israel Palestine or you know, understanding lessons around the Holocaust or history, or anything it is, understanding the lives or, again, to use language, which has become problematic. The lived experiences of people beyond, you know, all of the privileges of living in London, um, communities who feel like they're unheard, is to do three things. Firstly, to say, I hear you, and to mean it, to actually listen, mm. honestly. Secondly, there are facts and You know, some of those facts, in fact, all of them don't really care about your feelings. Certain things happened on certain dates, however inconvenient they are to your truth. But that's not the key element. The key element is, well, I hear you, but this happened on such and such a date. But let me tell you a story. So whatever your political point of view, if you've got an example that humanizes, that enables somebody to understand a point of view, through the prism of somebody's life, through somebody's pain, somebody's shared experience that nearly all but this narrow brand of the pathological can really understand, Mm. I think you can really affect change. Well, that's where stories of the Holocaust and what you've done in
0: that area and your mum as well is those lived experiences of which there are fewer and fewer people, aren't there, who are able to talk about that is so, so powerful. Are there other areas, though, do you feel that we're missing... The lessons, and I don't mean the lessons of the Holocaust, but the lessons of how the Holocaust has been taught in, you know, to communities in this country to understand the experiences people had. Are there other areas that you feel we could be drawing on that experience
1: and using real lived
0: experiences better? Every
1: lived experience has value, and I don't say that in some sort of you know tragic kind of virtue-signaling greeting card way, you know becoming a lawyer. I did it because I was sort of good at debating and uncool at university. And so everybody went on to become a lawyer who did that. I wasn't especially motivated at all by anything other than, you know, the kind of, that's what people did alongside a soup song of, well, I'm going to have to come out at some point. And, you know, it's the nineties and I suspect my mom's going to be a little bit more comforted and slightly less disturbed if I'm a gay barrister than a gay actor <laughs> or writer, probably that. Nowadays, this would be impossible. know i was good at debating i got pupillage i loved being sort of the academic life let's say and it wasn't until i started even you know two years in doing case after case you know being jewish again often being conscripted because or instructed to represent the national front various other people in various cases that i understood how important it was to stand between the individual and the state, that if you're going to remove somebody's liberty, the ultimate sanction that has to be done to the highest standard imaginable, that our grandparents and people that we know, who who loved those people, were prepared to die for that.
0: Mm -hmm. Even though they hold, you know, couldn't be further away from the beliefs, the political and ideological beliefs you have about society. It's
1: not about them. It's not about them. It's about me and you. Whatever my particular concern, to say the very least, may be about their political points of view, ultimately, the right they have to say whatever it is they want to say is completely sacrosanct. And it is the fundamental reason that people are prepared to lay down their lives. And unless you truly fully understand that, then we understand really very little
0: I think that's what a lot of people find difficult don't they about uh, well not difficult but they can't get their head around how barristers do that you pick up a case off the top of the pile and it's something that you know you're defending murderers or you're defending you know you're having to put the case and they understand obviously that this is you know democracy and we live in a liberal democracy and that's you know this is the 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 best way that we've found to, to live our society but how you you do that as a person I think is intriguing for people that you can you close the book and you go home and you have to you know somehow compartmentalize that i imagine yeah and i couldn't in the end
1: actually and that's what made me sort of unwell and find myself in this curious world that i find myself in by accident one thing i'll say is that you know when you meet people who uh, like the clients i was referring to before and you see them and you let's say touch the face of them alongside lives of real misery you don't know anybody i suspect gabby i don't most of your listeners won't know really anybody that's got this surplus time in their world to write something mean about somebody they don't know I mean who are these people and I would often see this sort of sea of human debris of you know this kind of darkness of detritus I mean imagine investing that time and energy away from happiness into that where are you what sort of person are you what are the a buffet of dark and grim reasons that have resulted in that being your contribution to humankind and how you're going to leave it.
0: Mm.
1: You know, these are not happy humans at the end of the day, which is why no. whenever anyone's ever tweeted anything ugly at me, I you know, feel desperately sorry for them, correct the spelling and send, them, send it back for that reason. But you're on, that's a throat clearing to the bigger answer, is that barristers don't come into people's cases and say, here's what you need to say doesn't work like that. I mean, most of the time, especially by the time I finished doing serious murder trials, if there are unserious ones, you know, the technological advance had reached such a pitch that, you know, there was DNA evidence and CCTV and uh, especially cell site analysis where, you know, your client was very probably there. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't like there was a years ago where you'd cross-examine an eyewitness and there would be some species of court in drama, you know, why was your telephone outside the person's house having Googled the day before going, how do I kill my friend, John, <laughs> you know, that's, which is all terribly inconvenient? And you don't go in and go, now, listen here, don't worry about it. This is what we're going to say. No. You're acting on instructions as a mouthpiece for somebody poorer than you, somebody that has arrived at the other side of the table for all sorts of human reasons. That's not to um, forgive them entirely for what they've done, but to understand that there are a whole myriad, a wealth of different human reasons why they have gone on to, to, to commit that crime. And it's often very nuanced. Tyranny is a deliberate removal of nuance. All sorts of strange and curious human features of why they've committed that crime. But when you go in, you say, look, the evidence against you is very strong you need to plead guilty and sometimes they'll insist they didn't do it and you know the reality is that even where the evidence might be completely overwhelming, what they're saying might be true and there have been cases like that and imagine who we would be, what would happen if that person wasn't afforded a fair defense as they're not nowadays weren't given The same, or at least similar, resources as the state to ensure that before their liberty was deprived for the rest of their lives, that it was done so to the most serious standard possible. You know, imagine you lived—I don't know—number one, Skeptical Street. Trying to think of it, I can't imagine you doing violence. I mean, you always seem to be. Although I don't know, Um, (laughs) there's something. Um, You're married to a rugby player. I mean, you must be
0: you about to accuse me of a violent crime and you're putting me in a position of you're defending me is that what's happening mm,
1: here <laughs> no no actually no i don't think you'd do anything really awful and you've got some ghastly neighbor who for you know months has driven you crazy and some sort of vexatious litigant and you know the the full uh, ambit of somebody next to you who's determined to make your life difficult and after a while you're having some sort of moment and You leave for work in the morning and it's dusk and you say mr smith let's call him that i'm gonna effing kill you and go to work you forget all about it you know in your case you know one minute you're doing the coronation the next minute it's gymnastics and crafts or whatever you know (laughs) curious collage of briefs that you do and you come back forget all about it out of nowhere someone else that dislikes mr smith only he's dressed in a clown costume comes out of nowhere puts a knife in mr smith's back and um You run up to him out of sheer human altruism. That morning, everyone's heard you say, "I'm going to kill you." Pull the knife out of that. He turns around. All the neighbors come out of their house. He looks up at you and shouts, "Murder!" And I say, "You know, Mrs. Logan, you haven't got bail at this point because you've got a passport and you know it's set pretty high and it's a high-profile trial." And I said, "Well, you know, your fingerprints are um, all over the murder weapon. There's blood spatter everywhere. You texted your friend on the way to work saying, I'm going to kill Mr. Smith. You're the last person to see him alive. His dying declaration is admissible in court. Everybody that morning heard you say you were going to kill him. And your defense is, well, it wasn't me. It was a clown that came out of it. Um, and there's no CCTV covering mm-hmm. that bit of the topiarized bush. I don't know why I said topiarized bush. I just want to <laughs> elevate the conversation. I had some levity. But... Um, <laughs> The point is, what you're saying may just be true. And that's an obviously extreme example. But even when we're children, we've all been either in a serious or in a, a, a small way. Uh, uh, s- people who have experienced injustice it could be a parent saying, you stole the biscuit out of the tin when you weren't supposed to, and you knew that it was your sister who did that. And I think we have an innate understanding of the emotional and consequent social violence that it does to enable or to experience injustice. Children understand it when they don't have language, it's why they cry. We know it. And so, you know.
0: You said something before about it not being the case that defendants are getting the the correct treatment, the correct service that they deserve. And there's been a lot, obviously, in the news about. About that and about the criminal justice system creaking um, and potentially being a breaking point. How much will AI, do you think, help or hinder that process? And do you see a situation where those human moments that you must have experienced and many barristers do will all but be completely eradicated if AI kind of could could determine? You
1: mean if AI, just to be clear, do you mean if AI was to replace a jury and a judge? Mm. I think that would be. Um... Uh, impossibly terrible
0: Do you see it though? Do you see a situation or, mm. uh, or where part of the part of the criminal justice system is taken out of the hands sorry of a jury
1: and a judge? Mm, no I really don't and I pray that it doesn't happen I mean I, 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 mean, I could see how AI mm, tune into the <laughs> podcast that puts everyone into a coma and we could you know unpick <laughs> what you're <we're> actually talking <laughs> about but, um, Does it scare you at all thinking yes. about that? Of course it does again, you know, settle in and really begin to yawn. I mean, (laughs) Shakespeare was talking about this in, in Measure for Measure, a brilliant play. The law can never be an impersonal absolute. Criminal offenses, issues involving contract disputes, all of them are human actions that have a whole myriad, don't like that word, but it'll have to do, an enormous range of different human reasons why they happened. And so in terms of sentencing, the idea that the punishment fits the crime, and you can simply have a a computer says, no, or a computer says, this is your sentence, um, isn't justice. And everybody knows that, you know, the idea that murder, a one size fits all sentence for every kind of murder, I mean, we can think of five different sorts of murders. And ten different reasons why somebody ultimately commits that crime and that a human being isn't behind the determination on behalf of other human beings to listen, hear, understand the full completion, empathy, various reasons that have led, as I say, the person to have committed that offence, you know, is deeply dangerous. And, you know, the true, the same in in juries. You know, I did lots of jury trials where sometimes the jury would come up with the right verdict. The book I originally wanted to write was about three acquittals where all three of the defendants were undoubtedly guilty of the offence. And the jury, in one case, the court-martial, found them not guilty, despite effectively being instructed by the court to find them guilty. And justice was done. And justice isn't ever achievable, through a computer, until such time as computers have the full completion of um, humankind's rare gifts, including the spiritual component of what it means to be a human being. And oddly, and perhaps curious segue to the Holocaust, which you asked me about earlier, I recently, for the first time, went to Auschwitz-Birkenau, which given the amount of work I've done, my grandfather being a survivor, it's odd I went for the first time. I'd gone with my mum and my grandfather was alive to Auschwitz, but we hadn't been able to stay long because we weren't ready. And um, it's really important to me and to anybody who goes to that ground or thinks about themselves in the world, not just to acknowledge the loss of the victims and what inevitably was consequently deprived of for all of us to the world, the millions of people who died in terms of the gifts and talents they would have brought us. That's obviously beyond tragic. It's, there's no language for that. It's where kind of prose ends and poetry begins, or maybe silence starts. I, I don't know. It, it is personal for me and it should be for all of humankind. It's the bystanders, of course, those who enabled bad things to happen, but it's also the perpetrators. And unless you can understand that you too could be radicalized, you too could do your job as a Nazi prison guard, unless you too are able to understand and acknowledge the frailties and weaknesses of you as a human being morally, you know, I don't think you really will fully ever understand yourself. The best book on the subject, I think, is Ian Browning's Ordinary Men. And anybody asks me, what should I read about the Holocaust? I always direct them there. And it's not really a book about the, vi- the victims. It's a book about one, uh, one battalion of ordinary people, postmen, university lecturers, who find themselves radicalised to do the most awful things. And ten years, five years previously, all of us would have had a perfectly pleasant evening with them. And yet they found themselves in paragraphs of human horror, were doing things which are completely indescribable.
0: Does that mean that you somehow through the journey that you've been on, um, in terms of your visits there and what you've done with your mum and your wider family, have managed to find some forgiveness?
1: Oh, I've always had that. I mean, how can we live without that? That's sacred. Course.
0: So, if forgiving the whole the whole regime, the whole or the individuals, how do you how do you compartmentalise that? I don't think view? it
1: requires compartmentalisation. I think you live in forgiveness. I mean, that's not the same as forgetting. Those are two different things. Or justice, justice has to be done.
0: So, when you go there, there's no sense of anger then
1: anymore. It's really good question in this sense, is that um, I was with my friend whose mother was a survivor. We left, and I said, "How do you feel?" And she said, "Angry." And you asked me about the survivors a little bit earlier. I overuse this word, but it is quite the most extraordinary thing. my grandfather was many complex things, including being quite eccentric in a variety of ways. But he never held, or I was never conscious, and you always are, you know, of him being ever angry at the Nazis, the Germans. He often would talk to young Germans and have examples of it. If you ever have the gift, as you may have done, of being now, as you say, increasingly depleting magic of seeing and being around Holocaust survivors around a buffet table, listening to them as they now are able to talk in the later part of their lives, when the trauma is just a little bit in beyond the horizon where it's easier for them to share the pain, let's say. None of them ever talk about hate, ever. Not just because it would have in this most easy sense, sort of meant that the Nazis had won. And I'm talking about parent people whose, like in my grandfather's case, mother and father and four little sisters and brother were m- murdered. Not just because it would meant the Nazis would won, but because the idea of living in enduring anger s- with a conscious daily thirst for retribution would be so depleting, exhausting, would in every sense limit your capacity for the most important thing which is joy and presence and a delight in being alive. I wanted
0: to ask you about how learning in such depth about your family has has helped you as a as a man in 2023 and, you know, going forwards in life. But actually also that's triggered the thoughts that people listening won't have experienced anything as dramatic as that necessarily in their family history, but they will have grievances and people that they feel have wronged their family or they've, you know, had historical kind of upset that has laid deep inside them and, you know, trauma that hasn't hasn't come out. How much do you think the journey that you went on has allowed you to kind of Mm. sit here as a man uh, in his mid-40s and feel happy and content with the world and and a greater understanding of
1: of what you're here to do? I don't know what I'm here to do. I mean, it changes daily. Sometimes I think I'm, you know, full of profundity. The rest of the time I think I'm just doing, you know, window dressing and hair and makeup. I I don't know. I don't... You haven't got all the answers. (laughs) none of them. Although there are certain impulses we have. That we learn we're talking about forgiveness knowing that there's a reason why that sacred message in christianity i'm not a christian i'm very proud and religious too but why does that message endure what does it speak to in us it's a curious thing for two millennia and beyond and it goes back to aristotle but the two things you ask is well everybody has been wronged in some way you know carries around with them weights and challenges and shadows from the past and often that's because other people especially parents have let's say as a shorthand made really poor choices for them on behalf of them and um you know there are two elements of it the first thing is to and this is i suppose what's been a gift to me to have richly explored and unpicked my own family's history is to remember that our parents and grandparents are the product of their parents and their grandparents, their environment, imperfect, fallible human beings, that some of the time, not always, sort of did their very best based upon what they knew. And um, often that would have resulted in them making quite poor choices for themselves and for you as a result. But they, too, are people just like you who have experienced trauma and parents who have made poor choices.
0: But understanding them, do you think you would advise anybody listening to mm. try and if they're, if they're struggling with things from their, their past, actually going back and trying to understand your past helps your present So A lot of people don't have that. Obviously you're in a, and you and I are in privileged positions. So you did, who do you think you are? You can go and, you know, a a lot of people spend time researching that and helping you. Um, It's not always as as easy as it for people to to do that, but it's, it's for you something that is really important to, to try and unravel.
1: Yeah. I mean, understanding the social environment that your parent was brought up in, who their parents were. Now, some people may find, and it is true in a rare number of cases, I had a friend and I was, who runs, a, well, I say what they do, but they have a, a very big job looking after thousands and thousands and thousands of children. And I was kind of mansplaining to this person about how terrible mental health is and how awful it was that this particular situation would emerge and um, this person looked up at me and tilted their head very generously and said, yes, that's all very well, Rob. But, you know, some people sometimes, sometimes, Rob, people are just dirty assholes and it was quite liberating. <laughs> And you do need to be prepared for the fact that there are just some people who are. And you know what? That's fine. How tragic for them. And let it go. But in most cases, you'll find that um, where you have a parent that, let's say, or a loved one who expresses themselves in toxic ways, little petty jealousies, um, does things that feel corrosive or will display in some way. I mean, you won't have to go very far in their life to understand how it is and why it is, either historically, what was happening to women at a certain time that meant that uh, your value in the job that you did was completely limited. And so, for example, a whole generation of women um, my parents' and grandparents' generation are just angry and frustrated. And consequently, I don't mean that simplistically. I mean, often very jealous about perhaps the freedoms that their daughters have got and may express that in all sorts of um, conscious and subconscious toxic ways that you have to experience. Now, it's not going to necessarily give you some sort of lovely moment at the end of it, but to understand why this person perhaps does things and says things that are less than what you have romanticized and that's an important thing is I think of real enduring value for every person and I just guess the last thing I would say about this is that we're all for some reason not born with but we all learn very young to imbibe this sort of fairy tale idea of relationships marriages parents you know, I mean, interestingly, they evolve over time, but, you know, the sort of fairytale perfect parents or you're either that or you're lucky enough in literature to be an orphan <laughs> you know, who then finds a prince who sort of rescues you. You know, the, the sort of chasm between your romantic expectation of what you've, you've learned that's been projected on you and the reality is a really big problem.
0: Well, this seems like a good place to bring in an expert on family relationships and how we inherit trauma. So I'm really pleased to welcome psychotherapist and best-selling author, Julia Samuel. Julia's latest book is called Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss.
2: Hello, Julia. Hello, Gabby.
0: Great to have you on. Uh, Now, unfortunately, the stars wouldn't align and we couldn't get you and Rob on the podcast together. But he was just talking about how understanding your own parents or grandparents' social environment doesn't suddenly magic away any wrongdoing or toxic behavior, but it does help you to understand some of the choices that they have made in their lives and then maybe helps you to understand why your relationship with them is how it is. And, And obviously that understanding should lead to perhaps more tolerance or a little bit more of a, you know, a kind of peaceful and calm environment. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think that's really wise. I mean, I think what's so interesting is that we can't kind of will our feelings to fit our thinking and to kind of be a particular way. So although we would like to respond in certain circumstances in the way that we kind of picture would be right, all of our experience are, are embodied and they kind of flow through us and respond faster than our thinking. And so I think what Rob Rinder is really talking about is that when we have a kind of better cognitive awareness of the soup that we were swimming in, the kind of the environment that we were brought up in, that that then gives us that kind of momentary space to step back and think about our response before we step in and do our response. And so if we have a a narrative, a story, like I was brought up in this social environment and this gave me this set of beliefs and this set of automatic responses. So if I have a kind of cognitive narrative that I know how I'm likely to re- to react rather than just subliminally doing it it then gives me like oh do I want to be doing that now or would I like to actually respond differently
0: And your book, Every Family Has a Story, is on real case studies, based on real case studies of of people's experiences. And uh, and I've always kind of felt that, you know, having worked with um, an acupuncturist who believed this as well, that patterns of behaviour can be hacked into, for want of a better word, that you can understand why the family seems to kind of fall into the same rhythm the same pattern and i'm talking usually negative things obviously because if it was all positive then you wouldn't be investigating it and i guess what people want to know is how to hack into those things it's like when you hear a family saying oh um yeah there's a history of alcoholism and you know and actually that is a behavior isn't it that's not something that is in your genes there's there's something you know, well, there can be a genetic link, but there also is a pattern of behaviour that you know there, and that might have come from some other sadness or some other grief that they're that they're carrying. So, I suppose you know, not everybody's being able to access you; they'll access the book, maybe, but then they want practical things that they can do.
2: So, if I give you the kind of um, theory and then the practical, so I think you're right in the sense that we learn our behaviors from what is modeled by our parents and those behaviors can get passed down in two ways so one is epigenetically so it changes your genetic coding so in the womb you will respond in with a height if your mother had a very traumatic event or was um, living in a very traumatic time like say ukraine your child is likely to be born with a heightened cortisol response to danger because their, the, the baby will be flooded with um, mm-hmm. cortisol through the pregnancy. And mm-hmm. so the the child age 20 will say, well, the war ended hopefully, but I still feel like I'm living in a, in a state of threat. And that will be through the epigenetics and what, the research, particularly in Israel, Rachel Ehuda talks about is that that can be passed down in three generations. So the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors can still have a heightened sense of threat. Mm-hmm.
0: Which can be a positive thing to to be able to manage that, can't it? To be able to react to situations, but obviously it can also have very negative ramifications. Well, exactly.
2: So you're completely right in that the heightened, you know, we are wired to survive more than to have joy. We are, we, are, we are wired to kind of live as long as possible and to procreate, basically. Those are the two kind of big drivers. And so those are the things that come first. And in the 21st century, those of us that are lucky, we are more likely to survive every day. So then we're looking for other things to kind of give our life meaning and pleasure and, and, and joy. But the uh, the other thing, when you said about the behaviours passed down, I do think the good behaviours, the love that gets passed down, which also gets passed down epigenetically and through behaviours, is the protective factor to manage the negative ones. So if we, so not to forget about the love that gets passed down, so the single biggest thing within any family that is protective is that feeling of secure, constant, predictable love. And that will enable us to manage all sorts of adversity and difficulties and challenges, because you have a secure base that fundamentally you are of worth, you are, and you are safe. And I think that's the big thing is this sense of safety. Because if you have a sense of safety, and you feel calm, you then have your more thinking to recruit to how to respond. So Just to go finish back, the second pathway is behaviours. So it's epigenetics and the second pathway is behaviours. So if you've been brought up in a household that you see that the minute um, your carer or your parent is stressed out, they automatically have a drink or they automatically shout or they automatically just get super busy, which is what I do. Um, Then that is unconsciously, the behavior that you will take on for yourself. So one of the first things people listening can think about is when I was a child and I was, you know, there will always have been stress points in my family's life. Maybe my grandparent died. Maybe my dad was worried about his job or my mom was worried about his job. What were the types of things that I noticed? So begin to kind of maybe even write down what did, what did, what went on? Did everybody shut down? Did everybody shout? Look at those behaviours. And then actually I think at the same time, look at the protective factors. What were the good things that I was brought up in? Did were we good at having fun? Were we good at laughing together? Were we did I get lots of hugs? So kind of look at the security. And then think about your own stresses and begin to kind of maybe even list what are the things that tend to send me spinning? Um, is it criticism? Is it when I've got too much on, do I have a critical voice? Um, am I a perfectionist? Those types of things. And probably simplest behaviour to start with, to kind of hack into your body, is to slow down. I'm sure you know this personally, Gabby, that when you, you can do this in lots of different ways, you can do the sort of very short one, when you go and then breathe out long... And that you can do that like five times, and that takes like half a minute, and you automatically slow down. Or you can do the box breathing, where you breathe in for four, you hold for four, you breathe out for four, you breathe in for four. So when you slow your system down, you take it from the heightened kind of hyperarousal state, where your only way of reacting is to attack, freeze, or fly to a regulated state. And then you have your memory, your wisdom, your previous experience much more available and more connection to your heart center, to your empathy, to your feelings, capacity to reach out, to ask for help for somebody else. And then using that, you can say, okay, I got shocked by this, but what can we do? What is the best response? And often the best response is to do nothing first. <laughs> you know, don't do so your right. automatic <laughs> response. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Leave it. Yeah, and, and, and I know that, you know, myself it's usually in relation to my son, I react too quickly to things and then I apologize very quickly if I feel like I've not behaved in a way that, you know, was was right, but if I just pause it wouldn't happen, you know, and it's, it's habit, isn't it? It's, you know, trying to break those, those habits of reacting in a way that um, is going to then lead to a disagreement or an argument where I could have just taken a moment and processed it. So um, yeah, that's very, very good advice.
2: And the pause can literally just get yourself a glass of water. It's like, take yourself out, just walk, walk into another room, take a breath, come back. And I think habits you know, there's um, this man, Charles Duhigg, who talks about the power of habit. So when you recognise what you I hate this word because everyone uses it, but when you recognise your triggers to particular responses, you can change a bad habit to a good habit. So, for instance, a crunch point with you, with your son, maybe getting off to school in the, I actually don't know how old he is or anything, but, you know, often mornings getting out the door is a crunch point. And so recognizing that mornings is where you're where you have difficulty and you're more likely to shout you then develop a new habit in the morning because we it's t- time place feeling and action that triggers our habits and if you just change a habit to a, a small shift and you begin to practice it within about six weeks it becomes your new habit And you can can ingrain it in your system.
0: Well yeah he's just left school but I'm sure there are a lot of people listening Julia who've got plenty of children going off in the mornings and that would you know is always isn't it a pinch point I think in any any parents day. Um, Julia it's so brilliant to talk to you and and hear from you I think we need to get you back for a whole episode of Julia Samuel um, because there are so many areas that you're expert in and one of those I know our listeners are really interested in and ask questions all the time is grief, which is one of your real specialities. So if you would, I'd love to have you back on one of our special expert episodes.
2: I would love that. Thank you, Gabby.
0: Were married for a few years. Did you have, do you think, expectations of marriage then that it didn't pan out how you had romanticized what a marriage was going to be? Or was it just simply, you know, one of those things? Did you go in there with?
1: No, I don't ideas think that was our greatest that... problem. And I have to be quite cautious about talking about it. Not because I think, you know, I'm in the public eye and I've written a tiny bit about it, but because he's a private person. So people should understand. You know, yeah, so
0: it's more things. your views though, rather than the marriage itself. More your views. I mean, and actually, I, would, I was, in, I was, interested to know whether or not you are still hopeful of having the one for life, and well, or is that gone now? The idea no, that Well, I'm mean,
2: not think
1: everything's shut. What do you mean it's gone now? No, I mean the problem is, the problem is I don't meet anyone. Gaby. No, I'm sure you're going to meet many people who love No, I don't. No, 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 no I really don't. I mean, if there is a <laughs> scaffold out there that can read Proust, or if your husband just has a change of heart i'm around
0: <laughs> well i i wondered whether or not it had made you less romantic i suppose
1: was a better question you can't and that cure you... romantic you can't cure a thirst for love and um anybody so that's, that's a... still there yeah, yeah anybody that's ever been in love what does that mean i mean it's this weird kind of chemical force i would because it's my faith believe there's a spiritual component to it too that is inescapable you know when you go back to scripture where Corinthians is most important of these things charity faith is, is it's love why why does Romeo at the end of Julia I mean they're 13 you know obviously a bit older then I mean one they, they bump themselves off for love we come back to stories to be serious for a second of the Holocaust and the sacrifice a mother will give a child or will do for a lover it, it, it's a form of complete madness and I have been in love um and even where it's fleeting or unrequited, which has, I suspect, been the case in most of my experiences, it doesn't matter, it transcends everything. It's beautiful, fleeting, but beautiful. I think in, in, in my case, in terms of marriage, I remain optimistic. I don't necessarily think marriage is necessarily for me, but two things. Firstly, I think it's really about the relationship that matters and my friends, I've set up five marriages which I'm very... That's yeah. pretty impressive. Guarantees my place in heaven. It's my celestial mitigation.
0: So that you set up the dates, and that that, that
1: that then led to the
0: marriage. No, no, Gabby,
1: I think you're undermining this. See, I was so shocked. <laughs> that. This is this is like in the event, correct or not, that there's some species of heaven, and somebody like you sitting there, godlike. I don't like, know why she's smoking. I think it's going to be. She-
0: I think it's more likely to be you sitting there, godlike, smoking. But go on, no.
1: tell me. She sort of like you, and sort might sound—I don't know—a bit like Joanna Lumley. You get the point. Yeah. My luck, I'll be behind some blameless nun who'll get directed to a, you know, a cloud with a sea view, and I have to have something to say. So, five marriages—I've said. I mean, Jewish uh, philosophy or faith um, tradition—that means you get your automatic penthouse in heaven, and they're all married. <laughs> and, and, and what I've noticed about their relationships—and I think this really matters is there are two things that are critical ingredients to making their enduring relationships last. One, once the initial flush of, you know, sexual frisson has disappeared into something, you know, more l- practical, l- l- more practical, <laughs> let's say, yes. And that's like a Daniel Stilett novel or once a year or on Valentine's Day, or when the kids are out. Um, two elements remain. Do, do you share values and are you a team? And that team element is really important. And again, it, it exists in various forms, but just that idea that once in a while, especially if you're two independent people, the other person just knowing when-
0: So have you built a team then? I don't mean in a relationship because you're you, you're not married now. I find with a lot of my friends who are single in their late forties, mm. um, they I've noticed have built teams, you know, they've got that's people- a really that... good,
1: yeah, I, I, yeah. The other thing about relationship is really important. Just the last thing is you have to be able to stand behind your loved one when they're on one, their thing, be it your husband or you with him, just doing this. I, I could, Your your listeners might be upset, but just shrugging. It's their thing. Yeah. Let them have their mad thing. <laughs> and almost kind of find delight in their eccentricity. Yes, I built teams. That's a really good way of putting it. I have my greatest gift. I think, no, I'm not, I don't think I, I'm... I'm I'm reflecting, because it's my birthday tomorrow, you know, what's been important to me, despite you know the failure, let's say, which I'm unashamed by that word of of me being able to make my marriage or help my marriage endure, is that I have all these different marriages, and I'm aware, and I think it's important to remember that I'd be concerned, and none of my friends who have beautiful working and Loving marriages don't expect everything from this one person. It's that lovely really, tapestry. That's really
0: important, yeah. And that's-
1: right. That lovely tapestry of humans and coming to the mature understanding of who those friendships um, are and how to discern. And discernment is everything as you get older. And I'm really confident that it's this. I mean, you know, it's not certainly about so-and-so will be there in the middle of the night for me. The emergency services will do that for you. <laughs> you know, as will a certain p- type of kind of rather toxic person that will crowbar themselves <laughs> into your drama. You know, the first person that phones when something awful happens it's never your best friend. You know, it's always a histrionic one that sort of got the uh, bridge rolls ready for the funeral. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? That person, of course. It's not that. It's when something wonderful happens to you, your kids people who are closest to you intimately and you can't wait to phone them and you know that they'll celebrate alongside you and they won't tell you you know something about good that happened to somebody else they'll just be pleased for you right Mm. in the same way your husband will be Mm. and you know that moment in your life and they'll do the other thing which is not i guess say, being there in those histrionic dramatic moments Time to time, your husband, your curated family, your chosen family of friends, you know, they need to know, despite all outward confidence, confident appearances, the odd occasions when, you know, 99% of the time you're fine, when you just need someone to do this, put their arm in front of you and go back, okay, I've got this. Or actually, I'm gonna sort this thing out, you know. To to take away agency from time to time.
0: And if you have actually all those those things in your life as a single person, when you do fall head over heels in love again, it's probably more likely to endure. Because actually, as you pointed out in that beautiful kind of uh, uh, tapestry of your team, that you, you're you not actually putting everything onto that one person, which is so, so important. Mate, I you've got
1: dates first. And I've got yeah, well, okay. Well, I mean, let's we'll get sort that. Here. We'll sort what that. What you mean we'll sort this? Uh, okay I'm going to start if you're listening. straight women and I forgive you for this controversial are horrendous <laughs> at finding gay, gay men, men their partners <laughs> the worst <laughs> It's the I'd, absolute very worst.
0: I'd like to buck that trend. I'd like to feel because I've, I've, terri- no I've got a terrible record with straight women and and their partners. So I maybe there's another avenue that I can find some success on. That you look great. I've got no
1: small talk. Is, look, listen to this, as you can see. <laughs> you know, you think this is some sort of deep music? Okay, we're going to do. We're like. going to finish
0: off with a bit of this small talk. This is my date chat. Because okay, well, how about this for your date chat? You look great. I hear you run marathons very well, and you're really into your running, marathons, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Um And fitness is really important to you um, which is great because in the midlife this is absolutely vital you know it's, it's never too late to start but it is so important you've got to keep the, here's the message from the fitness community in midlife you've actually got to push it harder every year not back off so that's a good thing you're it's right true there of all
1: things in life get bigger it is it is it, is? Is, it wrong is true with this sort of idea oh i'm, I'm getting older i'm, I'm going to pare slow down.
0: down yes no we're not slowing down on this podcast we're, we're ramping up
1: Absolute words that begin with B, I mean, complete <laughs> of course. Now, that being said, you do have to rethink, I think, and um, perhaps reshape how you approach exercise. So, for example, you know, for me, it, it, it is about my mental health, the incidental upside of having a six pack, which is disappears within a week and becomes sort of a one pack. And then, you know, an entire big shot from Asda by two weeks <laughs> if it hasn't been looked after and nurtured. But I did do my back in the other way, and I, I ignored it. Have you started it, Pilates? Stuff. No, don't start with me with no, Pilates. No, you have to. Pilates is... I can't bear it. I went, it feels so smug. No,
0: no, and... no, 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 Just do it on your own with somebody. Do a one-on-one no, on one with somebody.
1: and all sorts of things, and I just, I don't know. I you a... can do mat Pilates. If you,
0: if you want to get running again properly and look after your back, it is amazing. And it is the thing, I think, you you're going to turn it. around to me. I might swimming. not find your husband swimming. Swimming's fine. Swimming's so I swim. good. And I Cold swimming. swimming.
1: Yes, um, I've been doing that for two and a half years and way before it became cool. And uh, <laughs> I do not Wim hoff it, you know, although I, I think there's a lot of interesting things he has to say. But you get the power of the cold water. Yeah. I yeah. mean, listen, anything that you do that's not just for yourself, where you're in arm's reach from the phone, where you've sweated something out, where you've completed a task that's difficult and you've done that in the day just for you is of enormous physical and psychological benefit. And the reasons for that are completely self-evident, right?
0: Mm, totally,
1: yeah. How often do you tick something off, right?
0: Yeah, and this morning, for example, I did a 7.30 Pilates and I was feeling a bit like, oh, I don't know, if she called me and said that she couldn't do it because I was doing a one-on-one, I wouldn't have. You know, fought her over it I would have said oh well but actually I was just so happy at the end of the hour um, I felt like I'd really done something it was only half past eight and it is it is that feeling isn't it that you, well, you step do into you something
1: else though, that makes you sw- I mean how do you stay so fit and Gabby logan uh,
0: Pilates weights bit of running bit of swimming bit of right so you ten. mix it up mix it up yeah mix it up but i do think if you can fit at least one pilates in a week if your it's not just the core at the front and the six pack it's the back strength that you really need to as we get older we really need to that's why people start kind of walking a little bit hunched and stuff and that you know it's posture isn't it it's having that really good posture that you so i
1: found that the swimming gave me that the thing about pilates is that like you say i mean so yoga forget about it because especially in london there's such a sort of level of farting smugness about it. <laughs> and if you go, oh, have your own journey. But if you go to the wrong parts of North London where I'm from, yeah. and you're you know, both competitive and also completely unsupple, despite my childhood of gymnastics, not yours, you, know, you sort of look around and you have some sort of woman who's having a, a relationship with her inside thigh and sort of <laughs> pretending that she's not showing off whilst doing a headstand. <laughs> and I sort of feel like this sort of clumbering clunk of whatever. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, yeah. I can't do it. So I walk up, try to put myself into a pretzel, and I'm in pain for the rest of the week. That's right. So I think Terrible. it's really
0: hard to do yoga in a class anyway. Because my mum went the other day. My mum's seventy-three this wow. year. Looks looks great. Works out a lot. Loves her exercise. Pilates. Walking, and she said that she felt she picked her mat up halfway through and stormed out <laughs> of this yoga class because nobody was correcting her. Nobody was. She was clearly a beginner in the wrong class. And and as you say, you can, if you get the wrong class, it can be a little bit well. Snug it's all and-
1: that bloody display, isn't it? And the same reason I, I do the opera reviews and stuff and. No, I just don't like any of that nonsense. I don't I you know I it, 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 but you loved, t- you
0: loved the Strictly experience And you had a real bond with your partner Didn't you? Your dance partner Well sort um, of I, I mean some. I love
1: Strictly Because I was a bloke doing it I mean you know <laughs> this It was a totally different thing From what you were doing We
0: did it, we did it together Kenny and I we, uh, Not dance together obviously But we did it at the same time I know I so, remember him dancing so, in a
1: kilt I, I Yes listened.
0: yes he did But what Strictly I think You know it gets bad press In terms of the whole You know sexual relationships And all that kind of thing And people running off In other marriages But actually there's There's a tiny tiny percent Of the whole experience 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 is about that community of movement. You know, when you, like, when you know the group dances that you did, I bet you absolutely love that because it didn't matter that you know you're putting a face at me
1: <laughs> no I, don't, I mean not that I do not remember them I loved getting to Blackpool albeit it's the only inauthentic thing I've ever said on television nobody conscripts me to say anything as you could hear that bit at the beginning where you like do these title I really want to get to Blackpool right and I arrived and I was like what the hell is going on right and this sort of ch- t- children's TV presenter looking at me she also had the sort of slight kind of sociopathic look of a serial killer was repeating lines to me and I found myself looking down the barrel end of the camera saying my whole life will ever wanted to do is get to Blackpool. <laughs> I was like, not that Blackpool's not pleasant. But I didn't, how did I say that? I didn't think that. As it happens, I, I did have a really nice time. We didn't have a special bond necessarily. I mean, I just felt like privileged. I mean, you know, I don't come from telly, right? And, you know, let's was that the touch. moment where
0: you thought, what is, what's happened? I mean, you've gone from sitting representing people in serious murder cases, mm. or as you said earlier, to to wearing you know um, lycra on national television in front of twelve million people. Was that a moment, one of those moments where you had a, a kind of out of body experience, looked down on your life, thought, God, this is this is a bit crazy? It hey. never
1: happens in like a you know an enduring kind of moment the whole time. There was definitely a micro moment, let's say when. I was wearing a German lederhosen, which is ironic in all sorts of ways, you know, like a sort of slightly aging von Trapp and about to do a um, Viennese waltz, which didn't go terribly well. And Boris Becker, pre-prison, walks in and goes, I was wearing that last week. And honestly, at that point, my mind went to less than four years ago, I was in The Hague making applications for an international extradition warrant. Um, <laughs> but it gave me some sort of this perspective, you know, they do that deliberate thing where they like put the camera, how does it feel to go in front of 10 million people or whatever it is? It is that sort. And I genuinely used to think, you know, I was obviously a little bit nervous. I thought myself, you know, no one died. You know, I'm not sitting in some desperately... Impoverished part of the world. But you never said
0: that. It. I didn't hear you say that on BBC One at eight o'clock on a Saturday night. No, you know,
1: that's because Tess would have got terribly frightened. You know, you had to prepare what you said. And standing next to her, and every week, you know, she would have a practice, and then I'd change what I was going to say. And it was as if I might have invited her to sort of think deeply on Proust, and don't worry, you know, I was like, I've got this. <laughs> you know, but it is really, it is, you know, that's why I wanted to be kind, so I didn't say that. You know, because you can't change the script. You know, like, yeah, I don't
0: think people realise how the whole the, the show is obviously very formulaic because they know you know people fit into boxes, don't they? This is the this is the the gay contestant. This is this the is midlife woman. This is the joke, act.
1: The is joke the... act. Like I was supposed to. This you whole, weren't a joke I, act. No, in the beginning I was, but I didn't. That's what I listen. I don't care, and I cannot care because I have this other career I could go back to. have great friends and. I think to myself, isn't everything I do is a gift and privilege? They kept so. saying to
0: me, I was on with Alicia Dixon and Kelly Brook, and they kept saying to me, who were about at the time about ten years, well they still are, ten mm-hmm. years younger than me, and they kept saying, oh, and I was only thirty-seven, and they kept saying, oh, how does it feel to be a mum of two with these beautiful women around you? Yeah,
2: I
1: didn't go
0: onto that show feeling insecure, <laughs>
1: but if you keep Inspired. asking me that question, no, but then we get to a really important part point of it actually, which we should talk about, and I've sort of written about a bit, but for some reason nobody really ever picks up on you know we came earlier to like um how we make a point and you know a lot of people i like to listen to and talk to that don't live in the kind of this word privilege is overused it just means who's in your phone and gives you access to cultural things for free that you wouldn't otherwise have you know lives in communities outside of london let's say for a shorthand um you know, I'll often want to talk to them about things like the patriarchy and what does that mean? In other words, the way society forms its values, its views of the world through the prism of, you know, not just power, but the way like men, let's say, have been responsible chiefly for being the um, main architects of institutions and how we come to perceive each other, women especially, let's say. And you need a really good example. And one of my examples I wrote about not long ago just I fell asleep in the back of an Uber. And my mate like prodded me backwards saying, I'm like, because She goes, do you think I could ever do that? Like just fall asleep in the back of a, I would never do. And I thought this is a really great example. So like went on the radio and spoke to dads and brothers and go, look, you know, I know why this word is problematic, but just be mindful that your daughters and wives and girlfriends are having a totally different experience of cities and life in that way because of safety it doesn't mean they're weak in any way it just means they have to about think about things in a different way. Well Caitlin Straight Moran not-
0: writes about she's written about the walking right. down the street with the keys in your hand you know every every woman knows that from a tube station home where you've got your keys ready to not not to get in the door to potentially right. use as a weapon if you get attacked, you know.
1: And the, uh, the, to be sure, and the, the problem is that when we have this sort of conversation that inevitably throws in all of these other totally fair whatabouteries, but it's a different conversation. you know. Some of my clients and the communities that I've got the gift of working in and listening to, you know, lots of um, young men walk around um, armed for similar similar reasons because they fear fear violence. So so there is, a, the other complexion, excuse me, the other example is strictly is a really good one. I would often rock up First of all, I thought I was gonna be really rubbish at it because the other thing people don't say is that you go to that bit in the summer where I walked into the room and everybody was like, it looked like a scene from Fame. <laughs> and they were all like doing this and Greg Rutherford, and we had a very lucky year. We're still really close. I mm. mean, I'm godfather godfathered. We've really, it's been, you know, nine years. It's not gonna show yeah. this friendship. You walked to me, like, mm. you know, <laughs> this is gonna be a blooming nightmare. And I thought, right, I'll be rubbish at this, but I know I'm getting the little Russian woman because obviously she's my height and they've obviously hired her because they they don't know her. They didn't invite her back the following year. I'll be the joke out acting through it. Fine, I'll discuss Pushkin and Dostoevsky, and I speak Russian, all the things I really like, winning. And after that bit where you meet her, you, you know, hello, and you do your blah, blah, blah. We went from, I live in Islington and we went from Boromir or Elstron and we passed Highgate Cemetery. And I said, ah, oh, in Russian, I said, you know who's buried there Highgate Cemetery? Karl Marx. And she said, he is a singer? That was the end of Pushkin. (laughs) (laughs) The whole point of it was, you know, that during the course of our time together, not one person ever asked me anything like they asked you. I would often show up without, like, my outfit, and we we would rehearse upstairs at Tesco. So I'd go and buy tracksuit bottoms. From Tesco's. (laughs) Yeah, or pyjama bottoms on a car, and I'd wear, like, a ropey shirt. And I'd look down the camera and go, I really want to win. Everyone would be like oh, isn't that great or I'm loving this and it would just be perceived as just you know
0: yeah well, I got, well, I, the, I, the thing I got vilified most for was being competitive I'd like to course. think that's 2007. I'd like to think women
1: are allowed to be too a bit no, more competitive in 2023 no but way. you know but what it happens? hasn't changed a competitive I went streak. <laughs> it's Laura Whitmore right and I'm like this is, I was living the dream, I was having such a laugh. You know, it was just that lovely level of benevolent fame. Let's say where people are genuinely delighted by what you're doing because, you know, it's a lovely programme. They only want to few. talk to
0: you about good things. It's all, it's 100%, all hundred percent. Right? All enjoying, of that yeah. good
1: stuff. And I'm back in the corridor, and, I, and I, I was like, "Isn't this marvellous? And every single day. And again, I know she won't mind me talking about it because I say I've written about it, so I'd be mindful uh, about talking about it if I hadn't. But she was having this totally different experience. Every day, speculation about whether or not she was having an affair with her dance partner what she was wearing, etc. You know, the full kind of English breakfast of the different ways in which women are viewed in the world. And that's I'm not complaining about it, and perhaps it has changed and there's been lots of good developments. But it is different. It's great fun though.
0: Yeah, excellent fun. Um we've we've gone way over the amount of time I told you that this would take. Uh, but that's largely because you, you do give excellent long answers, Rob Brinder.
1: But excellent long answer, that means you're baggy. That's why I can't haven't done live TV. I mean, you can't when you're like describing the scene of whatever. I mean, yeah, yeah I get two minutes. <laughs> you get right. I've done live television. You're like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. And they go, you know, we have to go now as so you're explaining some deep, complex issue about democracy and the rule of law. You're like, hang on. You think all live TV presenters have
0: got demonic eyes because they're always looking at you like this, going, yes, Rob, come on. Uh, I was told that you were um, by people who know you that I would find you deeply fascinating and you'd give me a really interesting conversation, which you have which we've, you know, none of what you talked about today, I'm pleased to say, has, has appeared on the, the tens and tens of episodes we've done in the midpoint before. So we've explored a different kind of path in midlife, I think. And I think I find you in a good place. Do I find you in a good Maybe. place?
1: Maybe. I don't know. I listen. I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to think about the a decade before this midlife conversation now and think about where I was 10 years ago, right? And uh, in the middle, actually, of a big international case, lots of complexities, working 100-hour weeks, At the core of it, objectively, the world would have taken the view that here's somebody who is investing in something with lots of uh, meaning and social currency and all the rest of it. And I was deeply unhappy and uh, spent and had lost the love and the relationship with the job that as soon as you've lost the love and and relationship with the job, is very hard to replenish that currency. In other words, it felt a bit bankrupt, right? I'm sitting speaking to you Like in the middle of the day gabby logan who i used to watch on the telly you know you're having a really good hair day (laughs) which i know is objectification but i just look i'm a gay man it's going to happen and um effectively that's what i've done today along with having a nice breakfast with somebody winning so my question is what what um i guess moving forward should i be feeling
0: what should you be feeling? Yeah, I feel like at, I feel at, like at you're. The point. I feel like what everything you've said points to somebody who is feeling the right things. You're good at kind of looking back, and, and obviously you've done a lot of that with your family and and learning lessons from the past, both the uh, the historical past of your family, but also the more recent times in your life as well. And you've made a big shift in midlife, which we talk about a lot on this podcast. And people moving jobs, changing careers, and yours was quite dramatic in many ways, but also evolved you know you didn't one day put your pen down or your laptop down and say right now for telly it evolved in a lovely natural way and you're saying yes to things saying yes to strictly you know saying yes uh to you know to writing books you know you're saying yes to stuff which i think is really important in midlife because as you said before people who decide to slow down or you know say no because they think that's what getting older is i don't think that's necessarily going to be the best and healthiest way to live your life yeah. later the on. The only
1: thing I would say about Strictly and in general, the last thought perhaps is um it doesn't mean despite all of these lovely experiences I don't have regrets, but I'm I'm confident what they are in midlife and I'm hoping to be more again, a word that's been sort of hijacked and turned into some sort of, you know, squalid Twitter meme. But to be more present. So the thing that I really regret about the past is that was a really fun experience. Or, and the only things that I really feel sad about, let's say, are where subsequently, it might be a year on, it might be a month on, it might even be a day later, I've done something really amazing, both objectively and in a moment of sort of intuitively thought, wow, this is an amazing thing, and have been worried about something totally small and insignificant. I don't know a camera angle or the fact that I looked whatever it was and mm. forgot to delight in the moment. Mm. I think
0: that's a, a lot of that is gratitude, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but being present—it's like that's be, what but I does. think. If you're if
0: yeah, running running's great because you mentally you can't be anywhere else, can you? You know, you're you're just there taking each step. But I think if you practice gratitude, then you are present, aren't you? Because you're taking even if it's hearing that's a bird in the garden and thinking that's you know mm.
1: that's a as lovely. long as it's not conscripted or inauthentic gratitude. It's the gratitude of somebody else's poetry. You know, I should be moved by this beautiful scene in you know, the Lake District. I mean, I got there, don't you know, I like the Lake District, and I was like, mm, I've seen it now. You know, and I was amused by the fact that there was somewhere, somewhere called Cockermouth, And I was very touched <laughs> by uh, my grandfather's history in Windermere, but I refused to be pulled into somebody else's inspiration. And for me, I guess it's about being grateful for the moments when you have them, wherever they are in the world. You stop once in a while in whatever interaction it is, whatever moment, and go, blooming heck, aren't I lucky? This is great. Mm. That's the thing.
0: And that's your moment. And this this has been our moment together. Um, Thank you so much for your time. And I'm really grateful for spending time with you and giving us all, I think, um, a real treat today. So thank you, Rob Rinder, for coming on The Midpoint.
1: Thank you, Gabby Logan. I'm going to be normal now. I don't know what that means. (laughs)
0: Well, we touched on lots of deep and interesting topics there. And I love how Rob described each of us as a beautiful tapestry of humans, which is a glorious way of looking at who we are in midlife. Rob seems to have a brilliant capacity to consider other people's situations and motivations. And perhaps that's what led him to write fiction. don't forget Rob's debut novel, The Trial, is out now huge thanks to julia samuel as well do check out her podcasts and books and if the things we discussed today particularly resonated with you seek out a copy of her latest book every family has a story remember to share these episodes with your friends and family so we can welcome more people into the midpointers community and thanks to Spiritland productions for helping produce the midpoint but my biggest thanks always goes to you for listening i'll catch you next time Bye bye